Hello and welcome to another edition of Opposition Cast. And in this episode, we're taking a trip back in time to the aftermath of the 1997 general election in the UK, which brought Tony Blair and uh, his new Labour government to power. At the same time, it ended 18 years of Conservative government and condemned the Tories to the exile of opposition. They were resoundingly defeated, going down to their worst uh, defeat in terms of number of seats since 1906 and their worst share of the vote since 1832. It was a truly dire situation with the Parliamentary Party reduced to a rump of just 165 seats and Tony Blair enjoying a massive majority of 179 uh, over them. The defeated Prime Minister, John Major, stood aside and a few months later uh, William Hague was elected as the new leader of the Conservative Party and leader of the opposition at the age of just 36 years old. He faced a massive challenge in the run-up to the next general election, which would follow in 2001. My guest on this episode, I'm very pleased to say, is somebody who had a ringside seat uh, for that period of opposition and was indeed... Uh, instrumental in ensuring that the show was kept on the road. Tina Stoll, Baroness Stoll of Beeston, uh, was Deputy Chief of Staff uh, to William Hague. Uh, his office at that time contained uh, a number of stars of the future, uh, alongside Tina herself, who would go on to be a Cabinet Minister under uh, David Cameron as leader of the House of Lords. Uh, there was also a young George Osborne as Political Secretary, and uh, Seb Coe, who was the uh, Chief of Staff in the office, uh, having uh, previously been a Conservative MP. So let's get an insight into uh, those difficult years uh, at the heart of the Leader's office. Uh, Tina Stoll, as I mentioned, uh, later went on to become Leader of the House of Lords and a Cabinet Minister uh, herself. But at the beginning of her career, uh, she was a civil servant. Uh, she'd actually worked in Number 10 Downing Street uh, as an official uh, up until 1996, uh, before leaving the civil service. And uh, we began our conversation by discussing how she went from that to a more political role that would lead her to running William Hague's private office. In the 97 election, I was between jobs, so I did actually volunteer um, for the four-week campaign and uh, and did a sort of role which was sort of helping out the team that was in number 10, uh, which was sort of led by Jonathan Hill, uh, who had come back, because he had left number 10 as well by then, but he'd come back for the campaign. And uh, and how James was the political secretary and he was out on the, on the battle bus, but it was sort of coordinating a bit with helping them out a bit, but also helping out a bit in, in central office. Um, but that was just, that was just, you know, a volunteer thing for about four weeks. And um, interestingly, though, I was in number 10 on the morning that when after the results and when when John Major left and uh, Tony Blair uh, arrived. So I sort of witnessed at first hand the sort of brutality of, of being hustled out the back door, you know, as, um, as as the new prime minister was was coming up Downing Street. But I went um, but I didn't go to work for William Hague uh, until. 1998 it was I can't remember precisely when but it was sort of like probably April time something like that sort of uh, March April time so he had been leader of the opposition by then for 
you know, probably about sort of 10 months or so. So quite, quite, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd been there and I hadn't worked on his leadership campaign. Um, and, um, and, and how it sort of came about, I suppose, was, was one of my great friends, Shana Hole, was working in the opposition whips office and Shana I'd worked with very closely during um, my time at number 10. And she had been in the government whips office then. And um, uh, she'd sort of, I think she, she had um, sort of suggested me because I think what had happened as, as is, you know, as is usual after a, a leadership sort of election, uh, the people who are working on a, on a campaign will often sort of be part of the you know, initial office of the successful person. But then after a little while, sort of things sort of settle down and, and either people sort of, you know, decide it's not for them, or you know, the the you know the incumbent, the leader, sort of decides that um, actually, you know, they need something more than what they've got, or this, you know, various different things, and and I think that, albeit Seb Coe had been a, a you know a feature in in Williams' leadership campaign and in the early part of his leadership, it was around about that time that Seb had agreed to become his uh, Williams' chief of staff. And, um, and Seb approached me about a role being um, his deputy uh, in effect. And, um, and it wasn't, I mean, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't looking to go back into politics. And when I'd left number 10 in sort of in the civil service in, the, in, in 96, I sort of, I thought I'd left the world of politics behind for good actually. So, um, but anyway, um, I was, um, uh, I like the sound of what what it was that Seb was looking for and what William wanted. So um, I thought, yeah, this could be interesting. So that's how that's how I ended up with with William. Mm. Um, and you said you were there on that um, that fateful morning of Blair uh, arriving in Downing Street. Were you part of the uh, the group that um, applauded the um, the old prime minister out and the new prime minister in? Because this, no, this is... no, I was. We'd gone by then. So what what had happened was that. The, the small political office uh, at that time, so the, the team in the political office, they hadn't packed up the office. So they had this scramble on the morning after the night before of packing up the political office. And um, I don't know how or why, because I, I, don't, I, I don't really remember where I was on, on the actual night of, of the election, but I said I would help them. So I was, help, I was helping them pack up the office. And, and they'd sort of, you know, obviously they'd rung up a removal firm and the removal van was parked on Horse Guards, on Horse Guards mm. Parade. And as they were coming in and out, and this is obviously separate to the removals from the flat for the Prime Minister. And, and the removals people were coming in and out through the back garden gate, sort of taking the stuff out through there. And, um, uh, and I remember quite clearly one of the security guards uh, literally sort of hustling us out of the uh, you know out of number 10 and through the sort of gates sort of thing you know the new premises is coming up the street you know you're gonna have to be gone you're gonna have to be gone wow and um so yeah and it's quite brutal and then I went the the removal van went to the house of commons and I walked with two people who were sort of there in the political office I walked with them over to the house of commons because they got to go and find you know, the sort of where, where the office of the leader of the opposition would be and get the keys and all this sort of thing. And um, went with them into the suite of offices. And of course, Parliament was dead because, you know, there was, it was, you know, th that, that period when nobody's there, mm. you know. 
and the and the suite of offices that uh, was then going to be sort of you know the home at least temporarily for John Major whilst um, there was a leadership campaign. It was um, yeah, it was just full of filing cabinets, and I and I don't think I don't think Blair and his team had sort of packed up in order to move out ready for number ten either. So it was all a bit chaotic. Mm. There's a rich history of those sort of switchovers in the, the House of Commons. There was a um, an incident where there was a bit of a tussle between Ted Heath and Harold Wilson when they moved the television from one office to a, to, to the other, and there was they had to argue about uh, who actually owned the television. Um, but they, but one of the stories um, about that clearly the Conservatives hadn't been in opposition then for 18 years, mm. um, and uh, Ken Clark I think said that uh, as one of the few who remembered being in opposition was one of the few who actually knew where the shadow cabinet room was um, and where the, the leader's office was afterwards. But um, some people, I think it was Gillian Shepherd, said that uh, when people went into the shadow cabinet room and those offices, they found it, as you say, looking like it hadn't really been cleared out by, uh, by Labour. And uh, she seems to remember there were sort of pizza boxes and evidence of people sort of having camped there during the, the, the election campaign. I, don't, I mean, I don't remember that, but I, I just remember that it was it wasn't it hadn't been cleaned out ready for somebody to move into. Let's put it that way. Mm. You know, it wasn't sort of it wasn't ready to be occupied. And, you know, you just I suppose, you know, what was just striking was just the the contrast between, you know, working in a place like Downing Street mm. to suddenly being left with nothing. You know, I mean, it was just just literally sort of grey filing cabinets and no infrastructure, no support, nothing at all. Mm. And, it, and having it, to start again. It's, yeah. it, it really, I mean, I don't know what it's like now as and when sort of, you know, there's a handover of power and whether they've, they've um, improved that kind of transition at all. But but that to me just seemed so, and I, and I, and I remember I left them then and, and, um, and I walked out on, and if you remember, it was a very, very hot day. Mm. Um, uh, the day that uh, Blair became Prime Minister, very hot for May, and uh, and walking out onto um, Parliament Square and sort of just thinking, you know, God, you know, it was just so it's it's just a, a very, very striking sort of sort of thought I had just just how how bleak it was, um, albeit that it was such a beautiful day. Mm. Well, I think all the evidence we've heard is that it hasn't improved very much. And even even new leaders of the opposition taking over um, from someone of their own party find that they have to sort of start again with the organisation. And I know William himself has said that when he became leader, that he had to um, sort of grab hold of it and, and say that, you know, I need to get people to come and work for me. I need to get them to in, install phone lines. There was, um, you know, a lack of... Uh, organization John Major understandably hadn't really been um, setting up a, a, a full organization he was really just coping with the, the sort of the aftermath as a caretaker leader but um, but you as you say joined a year well about eight months into his leadership so by the time you joined had some of those initial logistical challenges been resolved I mean was the office just about set up and, and working or did you still feel that there was that that sense of kind of busking it for for the time you were there um, I think, I mean, one of the reasons why I think um, William and Seb asked me to join the office was because I had worked before in number 10. Mm. And, and uh, you know, as you've probably been told as well by sort of, you know, some of the people who had been ministers and then found themselves um, uh, in opposition. Uh, I mean, after, after 18 years of government, you know, there was, I mean, people were 
pretty shell-shocked, you know, by the sudden lack of support and infrastructure around them. And, and I think that, you know, whilst, um, uh, you know, William uh, would have been sort of, I guess, like you say, sort of, you know, there would have been sort of managing in whatever kind of setup they had. Um, I think, you know, part of what, um, you know, I, part of my kind of um, task, as it were, was to bring some sort of real order and discipline to the office and to, uh, and to run it in a way that was, uh, you know, reflected, you know, sort of the importance of the role, you know, as leader of the opposition and, and leader of the Conservative Party, but, but also, you know, because I had, I, I knew what it was like, you know, to, to run something and, and, and run it well. So it was, it was, it was muddling along, but it, 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 it still needed quite a bit of sorting out. Um, mm. So, um, yeah. And, and you, you said that um, part of the reason that Seb approached you was having that experience in, in Downing Street. It is quite striking that, <clears throat> you know, after that, it's almost a, um, a kind of, um, reflex of, of some people sort of in, in opposition after that that length of time in government that they want to replicate the structures that they're used to in government um, and that certainly seemed to be one of the things that influenced the the way that William set up the office um, in, in a sense it, it looked as though he was recreating a, a ministerial private office that you know there was a there was just systems in, put into place which I assume were the systems that you put into place um, of things like you know having a <clears throat> um, a sort of a ministerial box essentially um i think it was alan duncan who uh, who commissioned yeah. a, an actual ministerial <laughs> box for the leader um and that that was one of the things that you know replicated the the, the daily um schedule of submissions had to be in by five o'clock on the dot and then the box closed and then the leader took it home to do his box over, over overnight and just those sorts of structures which very consciously seem to replicate government yeah i mean i think um so you know, I mean, William was somebody who had himself been, you know, a cabinet minister and a minister before that. So, um, you know, he he was familiar with that kind of um, support around him. And, um, uh, and you know, and it, it's, it's also worth bearing in mind, William himself is a very orderly person. You know, he likes, he likes order and he, it, you know, and, and he responds well to that. Um, so, um, and I think, you know, whether or not you, you, um, you know, adopt a, a private office type approach or another, you know, when it comes to just making sort of the machine work, it's as good a, it's as good a setup as, as any other, but, you know, different to a ministerial office, certainly at that time was that, you know, you had much more sort of political input, you know, than, um, than would have been sort of before. I mean, uh, I mean, when I, when we, when, I mean, if you remember at the time of, uh, you know, Blair's uh, arrival as prime minister, there was a, you know, a sudden increase in special advisors. Special advisors had existed in the past, but not at the, you know, to quite the same degree. And, and I, uh, you know, and I, th I think, you know, ministers and the prime minister had relied much more on the civil service as their sort of, you know, support than, than, than political advisors. Whereas, you know, as leader of the opposition, I mean, I don't know, uh, whether it had been like this right from the get-go, but but certainly when I arrived in William's office, our main base was in central office. So we would we would transfer to the House of Commons, uh, uh, you know, at lunchtime on Mondays to certainly Mondays to Wednesday. I, I can't remember what we did on a Thursday, but um, um, but uh, and and you know we had in central office the sort of you know political sort of support, um, which was 
very integral to you know the leader's office um i mean i you know i i think that i mean in my in my mind you know the research department and the press office um and everything in in central office was was an extension of the leader's office you know it, it wasn't it didn't feel like it was um uh, there was a lack of sort of political sort of input or a, or a lack of sort of sense of you were operating in a political environment, uh, even though we were sort of running the sort of tight bit of, of the leader's office in a, in a sort of quite a structured and, and, and formal way to a certain extent. Yeah. Mm. And that was one of the interesting features about that um, organisation that um, you had a sort of leader's suite in central office, um, as you say, linked to the, the research department and the press office and then moved over to the house nowadays you tend to have the leader's office in the house of commons um and i mean it's it's slightly better because you've got a a, a more um spacious uh set of offices in norman shore south now and it's a, a much more sort of self-contained unit there um but recent leaders from um certainly from uh, Michael Howard onwards and Labour leaders of the opposition haven't done that of having a no. an office in in their party headquarters. Did you think that was something that was was quite helpful, um, um, or did it lead to certain um, confusion or uh, or or problems? I don't, think it, I don't think it led to any confusion. Not that I can remember. Um, I mean, I think another big factor, sort of, which influenced a lot of. I guess what we did and how we did it was was money you know as in you know you have to remember in you know in 97 I mean you know the Conservative Party was you know uh, I mean, it was it, it was you know I mean I don't know how best to describe it but it was you know bankrupt it, it was this was the twilight zone you know and um uh, this was the, this was definitely the night shift and um so in terms of attracting uh, donors and, and financial support. I mean, you know, so it was, you know, a lot of this, albeit, yes, of course, you know, the, the, the space that you occupy in, in the commons, you're not paying a rent on it, you're not going to pay your electric or anything, you know, but at the same time, um, I, I, you know, in terms of the manpower around a leader, there wouldn't have been, I don't think, um, the sort of financial uh, capacity to hire people who were exclusively dedicated just to the leader beyond what we've got and so therefore you know the research department and um you know and, and the press office were you know part we were just sort of you know all part of the same same thing really mm. and you you talk about the issue of money there i mean it is one of the the, the big um disadvantages that the opposition has uh in comparison with the government that uh, not only do they have um, a lack of power they also have that that problem of, of lack of resources and and it was particularly acute uh, at that time after 97 because uh, i think the, the the level of short money uh, was at a, a lower level the formula that was used to to calculate short money was um was at a slightly less generous rates than it later became um and also of course it's based on vote share and number of seats yeah. so <laughs> you you had a historically sort of low um base for the conservative party in terms of numbers of of seats and so the amount of money that went with it was was much lower did, did you um have to grapple with sort of the just the budgeting of the of the office as a sort of first first step yeah i mean i can't to be honest with you i can't quite I mean, until you mentioned short money, it was kind of, I can't, I don't really remember what involvement, if any, I had in that at all. Um, 
I, re I remember that, you know, a central office, you know, it being sort of, you know, constantly strapped for cash. And, you know, and there would be times, I think, when, you know, there was, it was very hand to mouth. Uh, now, clearly, you can't use short money for you know, the cost of central office. Mm. So mm. I guess, I guess that those of us who were, you know, performing roles, which were, um, you know, very much exclusively in support of the leader's office and, and what have you, you know, we were, you know, I mean, obviously, I mean, I was never worried that I wouldn't get paid, but I, I just don't, I don't quite yeah. really remember much about it. Um, it. It might be, of course, that the um, the sort of slight fusing of the of the party organisation and the leader's office at that, that time made that easier in a way, because you, you were able to, to draw on those um, resources. But I mean, in terms of the, the staffing, when you came in, um, there was obviously a bit of uh, a bit of a change uh, in terms of who was who was around in the office, but did you identify certain roles that needed to be uh, to be filled, and um, what what was your role in sort of restructuring the the office at that time? Um, well, there was uh, so the people who uh, were there. Um, there was um, Alex Channer who uh, had worked on William's leadership campaign, and Alex was was you know sort of there right throughout William's uh, time and and Alex primarily sort of she did you know a lot of the sort of visit type uh, work um, uh, but also I think probably did some policy I'm not quite sure I can't really remember but um, uh, but uh, sort of, so Alex was sort of an you know sort of an important part of the of the team there was David Gold who was doing diary and I think David was there when I uh, arrived there was George Osborne who was uh, the political secretary uh, and then there was Seb and there was me and then we had um, uh, you know some admin support um, who sort of changed over time I mean I think there was probably about four people who came you know who sort of different people was sort of in the office over a period of that sort of from my point then on sort of you know three and a half years um uh, uh so um it was quite small i mean that was it that that was the actual leader's office um i mean there were other people who were big you know big uh figures who were you know in in conservative central office but in terms of the leader's office itself that was that was it really so um we sort of got by you know we got by on that and um uh I think I think I'm just trying to I'm just trying to remember I think when I when I arrived I think there had been I think people who had um decided it wasn't for them or you know for whatever reason had already left do you know what I mean so it was it was more about and what I tried to do was you know so my job you know what I was effectively doing was running the office I was trying to sort of make sure you know that um the political strategy or the political agenda as it was decided you know by William um and uh uh you know, and, 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 you know, subsequently signed off by the sort of shadow cabinet, but certainly William's political strategy that the uh, implementation of that or the, you know, the way in which we then may brought that to life, you know, that 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 happened. And um, and so I was I was a bit like a coordinator, really. I mean, we would have um you know uh, a morning meeting every morning sort of that William would chair, which was quite sort of um, uh, widely attended. I mean, there was quite quite a 
quite a large number of people used to come to the to the morning meeting and um you know and it was a sort of you know a question of making sure that you know what got discussed and agreed in the morning meeting that that then happened during the course of the day that you know i would also be very much the sort of coordinating person with the members of the shadow cabinet in trying to sort of you know relay to them sort of points that had been sort of um, discussed in the morning or, you know, I sort of, we used to have this system of, um, well, obviously we have the shadow cabinet meetings every week, but we then have, you know, weekly sort of um, reports that would come in from the sh uh, shadow cabinet ministers, which um, some were better at submitting than others. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that was, you know, that was what I was trying to do really was just to make sure that uh, in practice, we were able to bring to life, you know, what it was that um, was, you know, was, was um, you know, what had been sort of, you know, decided as our overall, you know, political direction, really. Mm. And you talk about there the, um, uh, the uh, reports from shadow ministers. Um, as I sometimes have to do on this podcast, I've got to declare an interest as a young um, researcher. I was working for a shadow cabinet member and I do remember the uh, weekly, or I think fortnightly um, emails um, to, to chase up the uh, the shadow minister's report or the shadow cabinet um, reports. Um, and, uh, and those were always um, very firm uh, to members of the shadow cabinet that they have to get their reports in on time. Um, they were they were an important they were an important discipline really because they were you know I mean it was it was it was it, it was it was helpful to see sort of you know what they were prioritizing and what they were reporting and often what they didn't say was is almost as informative as what they did <laughs> you know um, and being able to join up the dots I mean what I used to do every week because I I was I was the so nothing went in the box without coming through me. So, so I was, I was, if you like, you know, I was your um, gatekeeper. Yeah, I was an archetypal gatekeeper. Um, and um, so, you know, I would, um, as the weekly reports would come in. I mean, part of what I would do in sort of scouring through them is I would, I would pull out sort of interesting sort of you know, bits of you know nuggets from them and do a sort of covering note. But I would also try and, I'd also spot. Um, sort of connecting points of interest, you know, that would sort of, I, I suppose, you know, also sort of identify where things, you know, ought to be, you know, where there ought to be a bit more sort of coordination or things that, you know, William might want to ask or pursue for the typical sort of private secretary type thing. Um, so that's what, you know, I would do with them, but they were very helpful. And, and I know, you know, William, they were a pain for the people that had to do them, um, you know, like all these things always are, but but they did actually serve, they did actually serve a purpose and they, you know, and they were sort of a, a useful discipline and a way of trying to sort of, you know, bring some kind of, um, you know, sort of bigger picture sort of sense of um, what was actually happening. Um, I mean, the other thing I did, I mean, in terms of things that sort of I did, I mean, you mentioned that, you know, Alan, you know, had um, commissioned these boxes. We had two boxes. We had, so they were both blue uh, as opposed to red ministerial boxes. I mean, I don't, I mean, Alan being Alan, I don't know whether sort of he decided they were going to be blue or <laughs> whether these, these opposition boxes had, had existed prior to this point in history. I've no idea. But, um, but we, had, um, we had two. We had a sort of deep box and a sort of, you know, and a, and a sort of slightly uh, less deep box. And uh, and depending on sort of you know the uh, sort of the, the the volume of work that was coming through and 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 in the box you know you would have you know stuff that would come through from um, uh, you know sort of 
whether it was a sort of research department or sort of, you know, whether it was George or whoever, you know, people who were submitting um, work into William, which was either policy ideas or, or whatever the case may be, um, uh, that were sort of, you know, sort of requiring a response from William. So an action type sort of category of stuff. There would be other submissions, which would be um, information, which was generally sort of just material for information, for reading. And then you'd have this sort of for signature. So, and one of the things that um, sort of I sort of, you know, made sure was that, you know, the standard of uh, correspondence that went into the box was always, you know, I would literally read everything. I would, I would proofread everything before it went into the box for signature. So that, you know, you know, all he needed to do, he could feel confident that he could, I mean, he would always read everything, but that, you know, it was very rare that something would come out because there was a, a typing mistake in it or anything. So I was like quality control as well. So, um, so we would do that sort of thing. And one of the key roles in any sort of private office in that, in that sort of regard is, is managing the diary. And people don't, I think, always understand that managing the diary isn't just a matter of sort of, you know, keeping track of what's in it and and uh, and so on. It's it's perhaps one of the most strategic things there is sort of in, in the office because it, it's what the leader is doing at any one time, what they're spending their time on. Um, it's it's who gets to see them, what what sort of meetings are taking place, and and so on. And obviously, there there, there is a diary secretary. You mentioned David Gold, but also there is a sort of a, a higher level sort of strategy to what the leader's time should be devoted to doing, whether they should be spending time out on tour, uh, whether they should be spending time meeting outside organisations and so on. What sort of direction was William giving in terms of um, how he wanted to be spending his time? Well, I mean, I think, you know, as you say, I mean, he, I, Seb, you know, we were all very conscious that, you know, his time was his, you know, was the most precious commodity, really. So being able to sort of, you know, decide, you know, how much gets devoted to sort of visits or meeting people or whatever. I mean, it, it very much sort of, you know, is, is very much driven by, um, you know, what it is ultimately that you're trying to achieve. So, I mean, you know, for him, you know, for him as as leader, I mean, it sort of, you know, starts, it starts from, from sort of you know the basics which is you know you've got to you've got to work out what your overall sort of you know political strategy is um and uh, and if you're looking at it sort of in chunks of you know whether it's annually um or whether it's sort of you know in the period that may be sort of you know between different elections whether it's you know sort of i mean you know if you think about election cycles when i arrived in 98 there was, you know, Europe was was still very much, you know, dominating uh, the Conservative Party, and a I can't remember when the decision was made, but the, you know, decision was made to do the, you know, referendum of party members about uh, single currency, and that's very much, you know, pegged to um, the party conference season. Or, um, you know, you look in 1999 and you've got the European elections in 99, uh, you've got local elections in 2000, then sort of, you know, the general election in 2001. You're, you know, you're breaking things down, you're chunking sort of time down into sort of, you know, sort of various different big political events and sort of making sure that, you know, as you're working towards those events, 
you have, um, you know, what is it that you need to be able to do to, you know, dramatize and draw attention to and get attention for sort of, you know, your ideas and, and you know, and, and the things that you hope will distinguish you and set you sort of apart from or be more attractive or appealing to sort of voters. And, and so, you know, that, that's how you approach your decision in terms of how you spend your time. And, you know, some of that will be um, driven by um, the requests and invitations that you receive. Others will be things that you want to try and sort of, you know, generate yourself, you know, whether it's, you know, platforms for speeches. Um, but yeah, I mean, you try very hard to um, map out as best you can the events and the opportunities that um, will provide the, you know, the best platform for for you and attract the attention that you want for what you're trying to do um but um you know at that time you know getting attention for you know the conservatives in a you know in a, in a phase where the, you know the labor party and was was so dominant and was so very much unassailable it was it was incredibly difficult incredibly difficult mm. And that is one of the, the the most frustrating things, but particularly at a time like that, with as you say, Blair being so dominant, it was almost impossible for for the Conservatives to be heard at all, let alone make make progress. And I, I wonder how William sort of dealt with that. I mean, it, it was a hugely uh, pressured job for anyone, but for somebody as uh, you know as as young and relatively inexperienced as as he was when he took on the job. He seemed to deal with it with a surprising degree of resilience. How do you think his his character sort of helped him in the job, and and, and what kind of a I mean, what kind of a boss was he? He was a great boss, actually, and very. Uh, he is very resilient, uh, very calm, uh, even though sort of you know he was under intense pressure and you know, often ridiculed in many ways. I mean, when you think about it, I mean, you know, people would poke fun at, you know, whether it was his hair, his voice, his, you know, um, he was he was the subject of quite a lot of those kind of things that, you know, to a lesser person would be quite, you know, could be quite debilitating. But he, he weathered that very well. Um, and um, I think the thing about William was that he's got a great sense of humour or has a great sense of humour. But a very also a very sort of clear sense of you know what he wants. So as a boss, he was he was a joy to work for because um, he never lost his temper. You know, you never saw this kind of unpleasant or sort of you know you, you were never on the receiving end of any sort of frustration, which is not always the case when you know you're working for somebody who is um, in the spotlight in that way. And he dealt with the pressure incredibly well. I mean, he was. I mean, he's talked about this himself many times. I mean, you know, he, I mean, PMQs was something which, um, you know, I mean, to the world outside, you know, didn't sort of, you know, sort of move the dial at all. But, you know, William likes Parliament. He likes being in the chamber. And that was, that was a sort of an event every week that uh, was an important one on which he, you know, was was very successful at. I mean, you know, all parliamentary events, you know, he was, he was very, he was a very sort of successful uh, performer. And that sort of, you know, that that lifted other people's morale. So sort of, you know, was very helpful in 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 those in that way. I mean, it, it's um, yeah. I mean, it was. I mean, it's you know, when I look back on my time, you know, working for him and my time in opposition, you know, with 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 that team, I look back on it very fondly. I mean, although it was incredibly difficult, and at the, you know, at the end of four years, 
to have only gained one net, you know, one net gain um, when you put all that effort in, you know, is is incredibly disappointing. But I, you know, but I, I, it was a very special time for me because it was such a tight knit group of people. And, um, you know, you are, you know, you feel like it's you against the rest of the world because, you know, nobody is really, you know, the support and the, you know, and the popularity is somewhere else. But, you know, because of William, because of, because of Seb, they, you know, they, they had a good relationship. They were sort of fun, you know, George, I mean, George, uh, I mean, I will stand, uh, I will stand behind nobody in the sort of queue of fans for George. But at the time, I mean, you know, when we were working together in, in that office, I mean, we could, we could drive each other mad, at, you know, sort of on, on occasions, because we were very, very different. Well, um, I think William has said that um, uh, you were able to boss George around uh, every so often. Um, there was a, um, an interview he, he gave where he said that um, uh, you, you weren't beyond uh, telling George to butt out occasionally, I think, was the, 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 the gist of it. <laughs> well, I mean, I, you know, I, I, used to, I used to enjoy sort of, you know, what, what little power I had in the office, I used to sort of enjoy, let's put it that way. So. <laughs> Um, but you know it was tight and it was you know you were you were really sort of together and and um, and Danny who was Finkelstein who was uh, at the time he was director of uh, policy previously director of research um, you know they they created a sort of camaraderie which was very special which you only really get from being sort of feel like you're in the trenches but there's 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 just a small there's a small number of you really you talk about the resilience that William displayed. Um, I mean, what about yourself? I mean, you, you, the 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 team itself, as you say, was a, was quite a, a happy team. A sort of uh, the, the core team was um, a sort of a happy bunch of warriors in the trenches. But there there was some disquiet um, that, that that went on, and obviously there was um, particular briefing that went on with, um, I think perhaps allies of uh, Michael Portillo in the latter years, um, uh, causing um, some dissent. And, you know, there was always criticism from elsewhere in the parliamentary party. Uh, how sort of destabilising was that for, for the office itself and for, for you trying to sort of work directly for, for William, but also, you know, in the interests of the party to have noises off from, you know, senior members of the shadow cabinet and their, and their aides? That must have been quite difficult to, to deal with. Yeah, I mean, it was, um, yeah, I mean, there were, there were tensions. I mean, I can't, I, you know, I can't deny that there were tensions between, I think it was often more between the sort of, you know, the advisors really, you know, than it was between the, the, the principals, if I can put it that way. I mean, I think there were differences, you know, at, um, between sort of, you know, the senior figures, um, but yeah, I mean, there was, you know, there was, there was a lot, you know, sometimes there'd be an awful lot of, time and and you know emotions spent on things which were you know a distraction um and uh you know and you know seemingly a waste of effort but do i you know does it does it dominate my thoughts when i look back on that time not really not really i suppose you get sort of more perspective that all of these sort of uh, the firefighting that goes on on a day-to-day basis really fades i suppose that um ultimately that yeah it does you know i mean i think sort of it does actually yeah and i'm and, and i think you know maybe with the passage of time you know i i just i just do think of the sort of you know of, of uh, you know the the sort of good memories really um and um 
I think as well, you know, you just think about the sort of, you know, the things which were, um, you know, entertaining and sort of, you know, and, and, you know, sort of, I don't know, a lot of differences often, you know, when you look back on them, they're so, they're over such small things in reality. They're not, you know, they, they may seem big at the time and they may sort of, you know, feel sort of, you know, very, um, uh, you know, very upsetting or, or whatever, but they're not really. And people mm. move on, you know, and, and, you know, you forget these things. I do yeah. anyway. I mean, they don't, they don't, they don't loom large in my mind. Mm. And so overall, in those four years, you say it ended with, you know, a very disappointing result in sort of a net gain of, of one seat, um, and William announcing his, his resignation. Um, what do you remember about that election night and, and the decision uh, that he took to stand down? I think he said that he'd set, uh, as I think most leaders tend to do, a sort of a threshold for how well uh, he felt he had to do in order to stay. Um, and when that wasn't reached, um, he was quite clear that he wanted to, to resign. Um, do you remember much about his his attitude to that? And um, was, was he expecting to do better as you got towards polling day? Or um, was was he pretty much expecting to be where they were? And, and how did he how did he react to that and, and decide to, to stand down? I think William was probably quite realistic, really, in his uh, expectations. Uh, but that didn't, you know, and nor should it have done. And it would have been tragic if it did. It, it didn't. It didn't, um, you know, diminish the effort and, you know, and and the you know commitment uh, that went into seeking to win, you know, and 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 the campaign that, you know, he ran. And um, and I was, you know, I look, I was, I, I was looking back over the. You know the months prior to the 2001 uh, election, and um, I don't think it would have matter what um, you know what kind of campaign or what sort of you know type of issues we had campaigned on. We were never going to defeat Labour at that time. They were just too they were too dominant. You know Blair was too popular, and everything else. You know, and I think the I suppose back to your earlier question. I suppose the sort of you know the tension you know, in the party over the preceding years, not so much about sort of Europe, but between the kind of, you know, as was talked about at the time, there's a mods and rockers type sort of, you know, um, option, you know, are we sort of, you know, are we modernizers or are we sort of, you know, just kind of traditionalists and, you know, William focused more on the sort of, you know, more of the sort of, you know, heartland type sort of Tory sort of agenda, but he did nonetheless, uh, I think, uh, and you saw this in his 2000 party conference speech, actually speak to people who were um, not just the sort of Tory heartland, but actually working class people who, you know, for him, you know, he got sort of, you know, felt a real sort of affinity with. And um, there's a passage in his 2000 speech, which talks about, you know, sort of come with me to Rotherham. And, you know, and he talks there about sort of people who had, you know, the people he grew up amongst and, you know, and how they were, you know, felt like, you know, there was not being heard and understood. And this is even back then, you know. So I think that there was a, there was quite a lot about sort of, you know, what William believed in and, and how he approached that election 
which was you know really important and uh, and I think sort of you know albeit didn't lead to a you know translate into into votes and therefore you know sort of well you know so what I think um, you know I, I felt sort of quite proud of on the night itself I mean I was at central office clearly sort of William and Seb were up in the constituency and uh, and don't forget by this time you know George had gone to Tatton you know Danny was in Harrow you know so during the campaign you know some of the key figures had not been present actually and um, and I was in you know I was in central office we trimmed up the office you know of course as the night went on you sort of you know any sort of (laughs) any effort of positivity or optimism sort of you know completely evaporated and, and I don't remember precisely at what point it became sort of, you know, completely sort of depressing. But um, Williams have arrived back at central office early in the morning. And by which time there was already a small group of uh, shadow cabinet people, uh, you know, who were sort of hanging around. And William sort of uh, came into the building and he came up to sort of outside of my office and, and I gave him a, you know, a big hug. And we had a, you know, sort of small meeting of a small group of people, sort of close type advisors in his office. I don't know, did he tell us then that he was uh, going to resign? I mean, it was obvious that he was. And I think for me, one of the things which I was, you know, I knew he would have to resign because I'd heard some of the shadow cabinet ministers talking before he got back to central office about you know the views of their sort of you know constituency association chairman and all this sort of thing about William and and I just thought you know he's gonna have to go and I think he did tell us in the office that was it no did he no he didn't I'm just trying I don't think he did actually but he I remember him saying to us that he was very proud of us all and he momentarily choked which is very unlike William and everybody was silent in the room I'd forgotten this and I spoke I don't know why it was me but and you know and I sort of said well we're very proud of you anyway at which point that was sort of you know everybody was sort of ushered out and uh, William prepared himself to go downstairs and address the central office troops and he he didn't tell everybody he was about to resign obviously he just sort of thanked everybody and what have you you know got you know lots of uh, cheers and sort of claps and what have you and then he went out onto the front steps of uh, central office and there was Fionn with him and and Seb and you know he announced his uh, resignation then uh, and it was yeah it was just so sad and then he sort of got in the car and he went straight back up to Richmond and by which point you know so I started sending everybody home and and um, you know I took down the trimmings you know all the sort of bunting and everything in the office uh, yeah and I remember uh, sort of, you know, it was obviously very quiet and there was nobody about. And, and Anne Whittacombe came in. And I, I remember Anne giving me a hug, actually. <laughs> and uh, But yeah, and it was just very, it was all very sad. And then we had, you know, quite a long period after then, because that was June. And, um, and the leadership uh, election for his successor was not then decided until sort of early September. So yeah. it seemed like quite September a long the 11th. time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and how would you rate him as a, a, as a leader? It's a very difficult question to, to answer. But I mean, you can make a case for there being criteria for success as leader of the opposition other than winning an election. Um, and obviously, that's the main objective. But I, I always think, for example, 
Neil Kinnock is always very tough on himself for saying that you know he lost two elections, but I think anyone can see that his contribution to um, restoring the Labour Party to electability was quite significant. Williams talks about um, himself having um, undertaken the night shift in opposition, oh. and and that you know he said that well someone had to do it. Hmm. Um, do you think that you know he he brought qualities to the, the leadership that ensured that the Conservative Party at least survived in those in those sort of dark uh, dark days of um, sort of post nineteen ninety seven, or or do you think that there is is more to it that um, that he actually sort of laid the foundations perhaps for for later um, success? Um, I mean, I think I I do think Williams uh, a great leader actually. I think he's. I think it's it's a shame that um, you know he wasn't able to have his time at a uh, you know at a different time when he may have been sort of more successful, or rather all that he represented would have been uh, would have led to more success. Whether it was uh, you know even just more seats, never mind sort of you know uh, winning outright. But yeah, I mean, and I think people. Uh, you know, I think William's longevity in terms of, you know, the party's respect for and affection for him, you know, which is, you know, very real. I mean, it's still there today. I think that is a reflection of how important he was to the party as a leader at that time. Um, you know, the first thing anybody has, if you want to succeed, whether it's as a politician or, you know, as a business leader or sort of you know, any organisational leader, you've got to know what you stand for. You have to define your purpose um, and you have to be very, very confident and sure in that. And everything from that will flow. So you can't, you know, good organisation alone will only ever get you so far. But if you've got clarity of purpose and you, you know, you really, you know, you believe in it and you can deliver on it you know, together with sort of the machine, you know, running well, I mean, that, you know, of course, it's a winning combination, but you can't, you know, you can be as organised as you want to be, which is what, you know, we were, and I was sort of, you know, <laughs> proud to be able to make us that way. But, you know, without that political purpose that is possible, you, you're just not going to succeed. And I think, I think, you know, the, the, the difficulty for William was that, you know, even though, he knew what he stood for the party wasn't in a position at that point to want to sort of define what it stood for and therefore you know um there was that gap I guess between him and the rest of the party which he just didn't have the time or the you know the the sort of situation or the circumstances that would have made it possible to bridge that gap mm -hmm. so he had to adapt to the party in the end, you know, rather than the party adapt to him. Mm. I mean, did he, how much influence did he have on sort of, you know, what, what followed? Well, I suppose he did, not least because he then became sort of, you know, a very big, serious player again, uh, you know, albeit not as party leader. So, um, so I think he did because had he been, you know, just a sort of momentary you know sort of aberration or something then he wouldn't have been you know the the influential and successful contributor to 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 what followed thereafter so yeah i think he you know i i do think he he falls into that group of uh you know the best prime ministers we never had yeah um and we haven't spoken about uh, your 
your own sort of later uh, contribution as um, a cabinet minister and as uh, a minister in in the Lords. But I just wanted briefly to sort of to ask about some reflections. Obviously, our focus is on um, on opposition, but in some senses, the House of Lords is always the opposition because you you don't generally um, have a as a government have a majority there, and certainly after. Uh, the 2015 election, the Conservative Party was in a unique position um, of uh, being for the first time a Conservative government uh, with a majority in the Commons, but with no majority in, in the Lords. And and you served as leader of the Lords sort of in the transition period between the coalition and uh, and the majority government. How difficult is it to, to manage sort of opposition from the House of Lords that you have a sort of often a, a, a coalition of, of parties opposing you and and you're having to navigate the government legislation uh, through there you're perhaps in that position the only member of the cabinet who you know essentially doesn't have a majority how, how difficult is that to to navigate yeah well I, I mean from 2015 so I was leader of the House of Lords from July 2014 to 2016 and in 2015 after the 2015 election I was the first conservative leader of the House of Lords to not have a majority so nobody had faced the situation that I faced uh, before. And uh, what was interesting, so there's two things I, I suppose that are worth sort of highlighting. One is that um, this was the first time that Labour had uh, a taste of power in opposition in the House of Lords. So this was the first time that they they had the capacity to actually do damage to the to the government sort of through the second chamber they'd never had that before and and because of that picture the expectation was that um you know as far as you know our program of government uh program of legislation rather that that it would it would be sort of you know very possible that we would have to parliament act some things in order to actually sort of you know get 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 our program through now um i managed to get the program of legislation through without there being a parliament act um but it was it was it was very very difficult and and i think certainly for for the vast ma you know majority of the time that i was leader in that second year and i think probably throughout actually the labor opposition sort of rather overdid the amount of defeats that they sort of levied against the government really because it was almost impossible for us to win I mean it was literally you know on paper but um you know the number of times that that they were defeating us was 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 you know becoming a real sort of problem actually um because the house of lords was becoming the opposition to the government and that is threatening to you know the way in which our democracy works. I mean, you know, the unelected second chamber should not be the opposition to the government. That is not the point of the House of Lords. So, uh, and I think it's interesting now, you know, as time's gone on and that picture, you know, has not really improved in terms of, you know, numbers. I mean, actually the number of defeats that the government experiences now is, it hardly wins anything. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, the rate of opposition successes, but it's also become even more complicated because, now the government is, you know, so many of its own side is also now voting against it. So it's um, it's quite, you know, it, it, it's it's quite a difficult situation actually. Um, I think in terms of when you think about the 
legitimacy of the House of Lords, you know, um, and how long that can continue if it if it defeats the government at the rate it is doing so now. Mm. And, you know, it is a, a, rev- a revising chamber, it is um, there to provide scrutiny. But do you think it does fulfil a useful role in, in that revising function, that the scrutiny role of sort of asking the government to think again on certain things. Is, is that sometimes useful? I'd imagine, oh, yeah, as, yeah, as, yeah, imagine yeah. as a leader, you probably don't, don't see it quite that way all the time. But. No, but it, it, it is. And, you know, and, and part of, you know, I, I do think the House of Lords performs an important function. I mean, I used to say when I, when I was leader of the House, you know, I, I used to describe, you know, the purpose of the House of Lords was to, you know, give people confidence in the laws that Parliament makes by being complementary in the way that it goes about its work to the House of Commons. And and yes, I mean, it's, um, it does, you know, legislation going through the House of Lords is usually improved by that process of scrutiny. And um, most definitely, um, there are, you know, there are many, many amendments that are made to um, legislation without the need for divisions, which are genuinely improving the the workability of that legislation, you know, the sort of, you know, ensuring that it does actually sort of deliver what it's what it's seeking to deliver. So I think that a House of Lords, when it's working well, yeah, absolutely. I think it's, you know, and, and yes, it can be, you know, pain in the backside to prime ministers and commons ministers. But um, when I was certainly the, you know, the second year that I was uh, leader, I'm bearing in mind as well, I mean, that, you know, the commons majority was was very small, albeit there was a commons majority, it was, it was small, and it was smaller than it had been when the government had been in a coalition, you know, with the Tories and, uh, and the Lib Dems. And so, you know, actually what was really important was whether, you know, when you got legislation was actually, can you get it through, you know, the, the commons, not, not can you get it through the House of Lords, because, you know, on paper you can't, the numbers is not the sort of, you know, defining measure, it's, it's the numbers in the House of Commons. But my argument was very much, look, you know, every piece of legislation should be, you should think about it like a campaign, you know, so... Uh, and I've said this before, which is, you know, it used to surprise me that MPs and politicians would be, you know, very fluent and very clear when they were out campaigning to win an election, what they were stood, you know, what they were standing for, you know, what was important to them and everything else. And then when they came to actually convert that into legislation and bring it to Parliament, they would get very boring and they would stop thinking about the need to campaign and actually win the argument for what they were trying to achieve. And so, you know, every piece of legislation I felt there was a, you know, there was a a need to be clear about, well, what is the purpose that you're trying to achieve? How can you make the case for this legislation so that you actually attract support for it, not just from, you know, doubters in terms of sort of, you know, crossbenchers, although you might be sort of, you know, biddable in in the house of lords but but actually your own side you know you've got to be able to make sure your own side feels motivated to come out for you and and actually support uh this um you know what, what it is that you're trying to achieve and be you know be sort of disciplined be sort of very focused don't get too cocky about sort of how much you might be able to try and how much you want to achieve you know with a with a you know any bill 
And part of you know what I saw my job as as you know, a business manager alongside the business managers in the uh, House of Commons was to try and you know really push back a bit you know at the, at the point you know the PBL which was the committee where we would you know review legislation before it was actually given the green light to come into the into Parliament but actually sort of you know make sure that we got bills in good shape that would you know could withstand scrutiny. And um, and then, you know, as they went through as they went through Parliament, making sure that ministers were clear where their red lines were, what matters in this bill, what are you actually willing to sort of give up, what are you willing to concede? And also when you get into negotiating with the opposition, this is usually down at my end, getting into you know negotiating about what concessions they they may want. Uh, it was always, you know, it's often surprising to me how how there weren't more people more ministers who were good at negotiating you know with their you know with the opposition in order to you know well, what do you want you know and let's let's find a way sort of you know to, to sort of actually help sort of achieve an outcome that works for everybody um so that was part of you know part of the role of a you know leader of the house of lords is actually to deliver all of this stuff um you know in that in that legislative process um, but it's yeah, I mean it, it was it was tricky. But I was I was very proud that you know at the end of the first year of the Conservative Party in government not having a, a majority in the House of Lords that we got that program through and um, you know we'd not we'd not had to Parliament Act anything. I mean we've had some very difficult moments to get wrong um, and some very sort of very disappointing defeats and you know we'd probably had to concede things that we might not have wanted to have conceded. But you know we survived well it's all very interesting stuff and i and i i, I won't yield to my own temptation of, of starting to discuss uh, the salisbury convention and uh, all sorts of other pieces about management of business in in the house of lords we, we could be here for hours <laughs> <laughs> but thanks very much indeed for joining us on the podcast you're very welcome nigel thanks for asking me the very fabulous tina stole there and it's um absolutely true that we could have spoken for hours uh, in fact, we did speak for a little bit longer than you heard there in the interview. Um, we were having such a good chat that we went way over the allotted time for the interview. And uh, I've edited it down a little bit to keep it closer to the hour that we normally have on the podcast. Um, but it was all really fascinating. And if you want to know what else we discussed, I'm afraid you'll have to buy my book in future, uh, where I'll be using every one of the anecdotes that I got from her during that extra bit of the interview um anyway that's all uh for this episode thanks very much indeed for joining us and as i always say do make sure that you spread the word let people know about the podcast give it a good rating and subscribe wherever it is that you get your podcast from and uh, listen back to our back catalogue if you haven't already i'll be back with another episode before too long but until then thanks for listening look after yourselves and i'll see you soon Opposition Cast is produced by the Centre for Opposition Studies and presented by me, Nigel Fletcher. Our theme music is by Tom Hector, and you can find us online at oppositionstudies.org. I am an independent woman and a single lady. Never Lords might want to think of me as the Beyoncé of your Lordship's house. Yeah.